the question was, what keeps you up at night? What is it that concerns you? What problems are you trying to solve versus what we tend to do in industry is bring our products, our services, and we create the color around why it is that that a customer would need it or a consumer versus asking the other way, what, what do you need? And unsurprisingly, the answer wasn't, oh, what keeps me up at night is, you know, I'm just wondering what's the whitest, brightest, thickest, strongest paper towel out there to dry my, <laughs> my employees' hands. Welcome to A Load of BS, A Practitioner's Guide to the BS Galaxy for the second episode in my series of very practical podcasts on the life of behavioural scientists, their challenges, their work and how they think about the future of the industry. And I'm proud to say I'm doing all this in harness with my partner, BE Works, one of the very best behavioural science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioural scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services to healthcare, to sustainability, helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. If you're interested in what they're up to, you might check out their BE Curious blog on their website at beworks.com. Last week, of course, we kicked off in style by talking to Warder Malik, CEO of BE Works. This time I'm talking to Sarita Bethea, Director of Behavioural Science at the Coca-Cola Company, who is a practitioner of over 30 years standing, having also worked at Kimberly Clark, Toyota and Ford. Today we go into Sarita's path into BS, how the profession has changed over 30 years, what still excites her about it, advice for getting into the field and a lovely case study about washing hands, a nostalgic trip down Covid memory lane. And we also project towards the next frontier, behavioural science in the metaverse. Your guess is as good as mine. Sarita, welcome to A Load of BS with the Practitioners. I'm really excited to talk to you today and learn about your behavioral science journey. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. So delighted to be with you. Oh, it's a great pleasure indeed. Now, before diving into your behavioral science work, which you've carried out across three industries now, I think you studied law, that was at least your focus, but then something in you switched and you pivoted strongly towards social sciences and specifically the practice of psychological theory. Tell us briefly about that journey, if you would. Sure, sure. So I didn't actually go to law school, but that's where I was headed. That was my, my full intention, if you will. So decided to just you know, I picked psychology on a whim, actually, because you could major in anything and then go to go to law school. And so I picked psychology and I just happened to like Psych 101. I mean, I really took to it. And what made me pivot or change direction, if you will, was a teaching assistant. And she wasn't my teaching assistant. She was someone whose study hall I would attend. And, and if she had, you know, prep for exams, I would attend those. And she just came 
to me one day. I have no idea why out of the blue. And she said, have you ever heard of engineering psychology? And I thought, what what an interesting term of, you know, coined term. I'm like, no, I haven't. And she says, I think that's something that you might be interested in. And that was it. And she walked away. And I thought, okay, let me find out what this engineering psychology is all about. And so I picked up a couple of pamphlets in the psych office and, you know, learned that it was about this interchange of, you know, design of systems and, and environments with human performance, human capabilities and human performance. And I thought that is that is kind of interesting. And so I continued on in, in psychology. And by junior year, I started on my honors thesis work. And when I finished that in senior year, I, I asked my professor, I said, well, you know, I've learned a lot about scientific theory and how that works with this particular topic. And by the way, the topic was on the develop the acquisition and retention of skills. So in that area of automaticity, which is also pretty interesting because that's sort of the cousin of habits and how it is that we build habits. But I asked him, I said, so who in the world cares about these theories of automaticity? Why would the world care? And at this point, I knew I was going to grad school. I knew I was, you know, continuing on in engineering psychology. And he gave me a couple of examples that they weren't particularly satisfying at the time, but it was enough for him to say, but, you know, I think that's something you should do. And so that was sort of my second nudge, if you will, to say, you know, not only do I want to do this thing in engineering psychology, but I'm most likely to pursue to the practitioner side of it versus the academic side of it. And so long gone is the idea of, of being in law, though I do still enjoy a good legal argument every now and then. But that's how, that's really what got me jump started in it. And so Beverly, that was the teaching assistant. If you're out there, I'm so sorry, I don't remember your last name, but if you're out there, I owe you a massive, massive thank you. <laughs> Shout out to Beverly, wherever Shout you may be Beverly. in the world. Exactly. <laughs> change my course, life. Change your life. Now, you've worked across a number of different industries. How have you chosen the different projects, if you like, that you've been involved with over the years? Has it been opportunistic or are you going after particular themes and challenges? Sure. No, they chose me for sure. So my first was at Ford Motor Company. And they, you're going to hear me say the phrase, it just so happened a lot. So it just so happened that they were looking for a psychologist in the scientific research lab. They were, and this was a time, oh, wow, this was like the early 90s. And so this was a time when folks were really interested in engineering psychology and this notion of conseil engineering, you know, so how do we bring the emotion into understanding how people interact with with environments and systems and products and that sort of thing. And so that's where I started. They were looking for a psychologist and I worked with a number of engineers in my team, mechanical and electrical and that sort of thing. But I was the, the sole psychologist there, sort of bringing it all together from that, that human perspective. Stayed with Ford a number of years, I don't know, eight, eight or nine years or so, and progressed through engineering psychology there. And then I fell in love um, and my, <laughs> my husband was actually, so I was in the Detroit area. My, my husband at the time was in Southern California and he asked, well, do you want me to, you know, to come out to Michigan, you know, find a job in Michigan or do you want to come out to California? Now I'm a Midwestern girl. I grew up in Chicago, born and raised. And I thought, are you kidding? I'm going to come out to California. And it just so happened that one of my colleagues at Ford was well-connected in human 
factors, which is another name for engineering psychology, so human factors engineering. And I asked if he knew of anyone that I could speak to out in California about a job. And he sat on a board with the general manager of human factors at Toyota, so arch enemy of Ford. But that's how I ended up at Toyota. They just happened to have an opening for an engineering psychologist to lead the Camry line. So that's how I went to Toyota out in Southern California. And then we had a number of of moves with my husband's company, Kimberly Clark, and we eventually landed in Wisconsin. All roads lead to Wisconsin for Kimberly Clark. And it just so happened that Kimberly Clark was looking for a psychologist to help them to build a roadmap for understanding human emotion and how to make that emotional connection with consumers through products, through brands, etc. was there for about 14 years. At the time when I started, it was all about emotion and, of course, what the impact of emotion was for, again, innovation and brands and that sort of thing. It ended eventually in this space that we now call behavioral science. It had not been called behavioral science before the early 2000s or maybe even mid to like around 2010. It was becoming a little bit more prominent, this notion of behavioral science, which was cool because I was picking up a lot of other disciplines in psychology. So I was, you know, formally trained in human factors engineering and cognitive science, which is what I got the PhD in. But, you know, this behavioral science thing was sort of this amalgamation of the social and cognitive psychology and behavioral economics and anthropology, bringing those all together. And I was starting to pick all of those up along the way in my journey. And then finally, someone was looking to build the behavioral science at Coke. And that's how I joined at Coca-Cola. So it was another one of those that just so happened. <laughs> you started to touch on this, but of course, you've been a practitioner now for 30 years or even a little over, Correct. which is a long Correct. time. I mean, how do you feel that your profession has changed in this time? And with that, what is still exciting you about it? It's been so exciting just to see the field grow, as I mentioned, over the years. You know, we've taken it from how does the body work in an environment? How does the mind work? How does attention work in one's environment when interacting with products? And I've seen the growth from that to an acknowledgement in the industry of you know, humans are more than just users of a product or a service. They actually have emotions that drive decisions. And so, you know, continuing to progress and watching this progression of the field, it's not only do they feel, what do you know? It's the first thing that happens in decision making. There's an emotion is elicited, albeit subconsciously. And then that leads to, you know, the action and the post-rationalization of why we do what we do and that sort of thing. And so I've had quite the pleasure to say I've been very blessed to see how this field has grown over the years. And it absolutely excites me to see that not only people like me with a background like me know about this and and have interest in it, not only from the academic side, but actually as practitioners bridging that gap between theory and application, but it's become more mainstream. That's what really excites me. And so you have 
have people who weren't classically trained in what we now call behavioral science, but they bring a special lens that enables, you know, the digestibility of behavioral science. So, you know, your folks like Charles Duhigg, like Malcolm Gladwell, like Nir Eyal, who I know you also had on your podcast, they make it a lot more digestible for folks. And that makes it easier to accept as mainstream. So even if folks don't necessarily know the definition of behavioral science, most folks are at least aware of it. You said to me yourself before, you've gone from psychologist to behavioral scientist to translator of behavior and decision making (laughs) for business. That's a bit bit of a mouthful, but maybe thinking about some, maybe some case studies or examples across your career, maybe sort of bring that to life and what that really means in real terms, and maybe just give a bit of color about some of the problems that you've solved over the years. Mm -hmm. So one that that stands out, it will always be my favorite, I think, from Kimberly Clark, is my favorite, not only because of the outcome and spoiler alert, it was quite successful, but because of how it started. And it started with a question from the business. So I take no credit in asking the question, but I think it's one that we need to ask more often. And that was a question to one of our customers. And this was on the B2B side and food processing. And And the question was, what keeps you up at night? What is it that concerns you? What problems are you trying to solve versus what we tend to do in industry is bring our products, our services, and we create the color around why it is that that a customer would need it or a consumer versus asking the other way, what, what do you need? And unsurprisingly, the answer wasn't, oh, what keeps me up at night is, you know, I'm just wondering what's the whitest, brightest, thickest, strongest paper towel out there to dry my, <laughs> my employees' hands in my facility. That, you know, unsurprisingly was, was not the response. It was recalls. That's what keeps them up at night. The safety manager is, is recalls. It's not only the risk and threat of getting some you know, people sick because of contamination, food contamination, but the cost involved in it is quite high, not to mention the risk to brand reputation, which of course takes a long time to rebuild, only takes a moment to kill it. And so that's what would keep them up at night. And so a question deeper, what causes these these recalls? And of course, there are lots of different pathways to, to, to a recall, of, but the one of note that was important to to us at the time was the lack of proper hand hygiene and building a culture of safety around hygiene. So, you know, people weren't necessarily properly washing their hands if they were washing their hands at all before going on to the plant floor to interact with food. Well, now that is something that, you know, that we have something to do about and it involved behavior change. And so that's where I was brought in. So, you know, again, you know, how the story started, I think is 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 equally important to how it ended. And, you know, so we brought in behavioral models, a little bit of BJ Fogg's behavioral model, a little bit of behavioral economics and, and looking at cognitive heuristics and how it is that we could design an intervention that would enable people changing that choice architecture, enable people to not only wash their hands, but to properly wash their hands.
hands when they entered the facility. And so we understood doing a behavioral audit. We understood what their journey was coming into the facility so that we could come alongside behaviors that they already had. It was incumbent upon us to understand what their practices were in terms of audits and how they prepared for audits and, and what that entailed. And so learned a lot about the food processing industry. So what typically happens, worker comes into the facility, they get their PPE, their personal protective equipment. They don their PPE in another room, and then they go from that room to a hand washing station room where they, you know, wash their hands and put on their gloves and then go out onto the floor. And so the intervention really involved the point at which they picked up their PPE, again, through bringing these behavioral models and cognitive heuristics together, we came up with something super, super simple, super simple, a hand stamp. They got a hand stamp. <laughs> so, and it was hypoallergenic and food safe, you know, that sort of thing. So they had that stamped on their hands and their job was to wash that hand stamp off. And due to the dye that was used, it would take about 20 seconds, at least 20 seconds to fully remove that stamp from their hands if they wash their hands properly. And according to World Health Organization protocols for hand washing, that's the amount of time that was needed. So we understood what the current behavior was. We understood what the new behavior should be. And we understood what the workers were doing along their journey so that we could come alongside them in their, their natural routines. And it worked. We also understood by way of what they were used to in audits where folks would come in and do bacteria swabs of the hands to see how much bacteria were on the hands. And those were typically surprise visits <laughs> from, from quality folks outside the company. So we did the same. We did a baseline, understanding what on average number of bacteria on hands look like. And then once we implemented the intervention with the hand stamp, we also did hand swabbing for bacteria. And then a couple of weeks after implementing the intervention, we took it away. We said, okay, we want to know, is this actually sticking? What happens when, when you don't have the hand stamp anymore? And we came back several weeks after that. And lo and behold, we did not lose the degradation of the behavior. And it was, it was quite significant in terms of the reduction of bacteria on hands. So we helped them in developing this culture of safety, food safety. We were able to change the behavior. Now let's talk paper towels. <laughs> now let's talk hand soaps and, and hand sanitizers and such. But again, the beginning of the story is just as important as the end. We must do our diligence and ask the right questions. There's an amusing experiment whose provenance I can't remember, but it goes as follows, which is about, about personal hygiene, which is if you were to ask a crowd of people to raise their hand for those who had not washed their hands after going to the toilet at least once in, in uh -huh. the last week, uh -huh. of course, no one will raise their hand, although uh -huh. you might argue that most people might be at least once guilty. So you know immediately with these sorts of issues that you really have to kind of create an intervention to change behavior significantly. Right. Right. And, and I suppose also with the hand stamp uh, removal, there is a reputational risk. There is sort of social standing at play, even if That's there was right. a compliance issue with not going back onto the floor, but right. you can't possibly be seen amongst your fellow colleagues. Moving on, because of course time is pressing us, but so yes, let's yes. look at the, the next frontier of behavioral science. <laughs> now that we've covered the last 30 years uh, <laughs> of, uh, comprehensively, in the spirit of accomplishing lots of different topics, 
when it comes to the next frontier in behavioral science, where do you see the opportunities? Where are thought leaders and innovators like yourself pushing towards? Where are the new learning sure, opportunities? Sure. I think that there is strong opportunity in, in the space of behavioral science as being integrated with data science. That is behavior. You know, it's loads of behavior in data science. And again, much like with the hand washing case example, data science starts with the question. And so understanding what those questions should be and asking the right questions, where only then are we able to extract the data that's needed and interpret it through the lens of behavioral science, through cognitive science and social science and behavioral science, that, that explaining part through anthropology as well, to be able to interpret that data and then action on it. Um, because it's not just stopping at the explaining part. It's the now what do we do part that's equally important. So data science, absolutely. It's not the next. It is here. <laughs> it is here. What's also here that we could say is next, but it's here as well, is metaverse, right? And what do we do with behaviors and decision making that's happening in these virtual environments and in gaming in the metaverse and such? So loads of opportunity to put that behavioral science lens in that field as well. Do you have a sense of how the metaverse can play with behavioral science? I mean, I intuitively, I agree with you that I think there's lots of opportunity there for being creative with behavioral interventions. But are you talking with peers and colleagues already about how it could play out? Yeah, yeah. And I think as a behavioral science, we all should be attuned to that in, in one way or the other, because in some sense, it's the future. In, in another sense, like I said, it's, it's already here. And so, you know, being proactive about understanding it, because we don't, I think we'll pay dividends in the future for sure. For those who might be interested in transitioning their career into behavioral science, you know, that could be both from the perspective actually of a younger graduate who's starting mm -hmm. out or perhaps a more seasoned professional. What are some of the ways to go about this? Sure, sure. So unlike, you know, 30 years ago when pretty much did have to have a PhD to have the credibility even to speak in industry. Now there's so many classes, so many certificates, so many, and there are actual programs in behavioral science, if, if that's what you so choose. And I would recommend it because you do need something a little bit beyond just the undergrad degree in psychology, but there are lots of different pathways to that now. And so that's where I would start. And it's easy enough to Google some of those thought leaders in the area, but I will say you can go to places like Ideas 42 and Irrational Labs and, you know, BE Works to look for those opportunities for certification in the field of some sort, as well as more formal training in behavioral science at the master's level. Beyond that, you know, once you're able to get that foot in the door, given your training at that point, some words of advice, be patient. These things don't happen in a vacuum and they don't happen quickly. So it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of humility. It takes some boldness and the ability to get out of your comfort zone because there will inevitably be the need to rebrand yourself as much as whatever it is you're doing, particularly on the CPG side of the business. And so that's what I'd recommend and find yourself an advocate internally, find yourself as a sponsor, someone who can speak on your behalf and on the behalf of behavioral science. I think those are the first steps, the baby steps, if you will, for getting started in behavioral science. 
Yeah, that's all, all makes absolute sense. There's a parallel question, but I think some of what you say will be also relevant, which is that if you're in a business already and you feel that a behavioral science lens would add value to your work, maybe you're focused on digital transformation, innovation. I mean, frankly, if you're in any world where you're trying to shift behavior, whether that's for your internal employees or externally, then there's value here. I think some of what you say is also works there in terms of what are the baby steps in terms of how do you get buy-in and sponsorship and maybe thinking about what those first experiments might be just to get your foot in the door to build credibility. And the other way, the other course I'd add to, I mean, Irrational Lab's excellent. I've done that one. 42 courses also in partnership with Ogilvy, led by Rory Sutherland, mm. is also an excellent course, which yeah, I've absolutely. done as well. So I, I should give a give a shout out to them. But also, yes. you know, BE Works as well, all these yeah. guys. And I, uh, I was afraid to start things. naming them. I'd, I'd forget a few, but yes, you're absolutely right. I couldn't resist, but name uh, 42 courses in Ogilvy since I've interviewed both Rory a few times yes. and uh, Chris, Chris Rawlinson, who founded uh, 42 courses. That so would be remiss of me not to <laughs> Absolutely. Them a shout out as well. Final question. Have you got any particular requests from the behavioral science community? If there's one thing that you could ask for back, what might that be? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That we really take our discipline and use it for good. Even if you're on the client side of the business, the private industry, if you will, what is it that we can do to give back to society? We all have consumers. Those consumers are part of a larger community, part of a larger culture even. And so what is it that we can do in behavioral science that's actually going to move that community that would do some good in the community? That's what I love to see. Great. And with that, Sarita, let me thank you so much for joining me today. Jumping into the nitty gritty, I think, of what it means to build a rich career in behavioral science, getting close to the real and daily challenges beyond the textbook and laboratory. Valuable, of course, as those are to the process, but it's at the heart of what these conversations are about. And I've learned plenty in a very short space of time, and I suspect my listeners will have done so too. So thank you hugely for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dan. As I said last week, Sarita is a real firebrand for her cause. She's a super industry representative, eloquent, full of practical guidance, humour and clear thinking. I hope, listeners, you're enjoying getting the inside track on what actual behavioural scientists do in the real world. Now, next week, I'm talking to with veritable BS legend Dan Ariely. Dan is the reason why a number of my past guests got into the field. You may remember Bree Williams mentioning Dan, and of course Jeff Kreisler, who co-authored a book with him. In a short but wide-ranging chat, we talk about the meaning of Dan's half-beard, as well as trust, conspiracy theories, and insurance. Well, there's a Netflix series if anyone fancies writing it. Subscribe or follow me uh, wherever you listen. Uh, That's to a load of BS, of course. And feel free to subscribe at aloadofbs.substack.com to access all the pods and articles too. See you next time.